Isaiah 55 is the text we'll read before the sermon tonight. And then on page 870, we have question and answer 20 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This will be one of those catechetical sermons that really surveys a number of different scripture passages, but I thought it would be appropriate to read uh, these verses from Isaiah 55 as, uh, as a starting point, and it highlights really the, the free grace of God, God inviting us to come to the waters, to drink freely, to come to his marketplace, as it were, to buy goods without money, without price. We don't have anything in our bank accounts to buy in God's marketplace, but he freely gives us his blessings. And he does so because his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So he, he's beyond our ability to, to comprehend, and his grace is one of those ways in which he goes beyond our understanding, that uh, he can still freely give salvation to, to sinful human beings. So we'll start here, Isaiah 55, the first nine verses. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Question and answer 20 on page 870 of the back of the red hymnal. Page 870. Just this one question and answer for our lesson tonight. We'll read the answer together with with one voice. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer.
Imagine that you have to enroll in one of two classes and you really need an A in this class to hold uh, your GPA right where you need it to be. Uh, say it's for a, a scholarship or something. The first class, uh, you speak to the instructor and the instructor says that very few people, not only do very few people excel in his class, very few people pass his class. If anyone ever gives a wrong answer to anything in any setting, on a test, on a quiz, on a homework assignment, or even in class discussion, it's an automatic fail. There is no opportunity for second chances. Once you receive that failing mark, it's over. You may as well stop coming to class because you have failed. You speak to, you then hastily move to the next instructor, and you go and speak about his class. This instructor says that Everyone who engages with the material honestly and genuinely, everyone who shows they're trying to grow in knowledge and ultimately are able to show that they have, in some sense, grown in knowledge of the subject material, will receive a satisfactory grade, and many in his class earn an A. If you miss an assignment, but you have an excused reason, something came up, something that you think is legitimate, he says... He asks just for honesty, and he will probably let you make it up. Above all, he asks that you be genuine in your effort, and genuine in your desire to learn, and genuine in your desire to make the class better. He says, come, engage, be a part of the class, uh, act like you want to learn and to grow, and you will be fine. I'm not laying this out to give my opinions on how uh, a, a... professor should run his or her classroom, but if you're acting wisely, considering the goal that you've set and needing to excel in this class, which class would you choose? Well, of course, you would choose the second. That would be an easy call for just about everyone. And in the class of life that we live before the face of God, there's a sense in which we can enroll in one of two classes. The first class is a class of works. If you want to uh, try to achieve your own righteousness before God. And it runs similar to that first class that we talked about above. All errors result in a failing grade. And that is final. There is no redemption. There are no second chances. All your work is scrutinized to the most minute detail. As we've gone through the catechism, that's what they described when when it came to the Garden of Eden. And as those who are born in Adam, if we seek that way to achieve our righteousness before God, our work will be scrutinized just the same. But in our case, of course, it's failing right from the start. We are born sinful, we inherit Adam's sin, and then we go forth to prove that very state by all the things that we do being tainted by sin. But in the class of grace, what the catechism calls the estate of salvation, which just kind of paints a nice picture for us. We were in an estate of sin and misery, and God, by Jesus Christ, brings us into an estate of salvation. In the class of grace, there is redemption. God deals graciously with our sins. He even accepts our work. But all of this happens because of one central thing that changes it all. And that, of course, is a redeemer, a mediator. So tonight's lesson is so that we might, might see how much better it is to deal with God, to relate to this God in this gracious way, 
through the covenant of grace. And how we do that, how we find an interest in that mediator, Jesus Christ. So first, uh, we need to recognize the difference in these covenants and particular, particularly to see how much better the covenant of grace is. Not just a little bit better, it's completely different and much more glorious and wonderful to us. In the covenant of works that uh, the, the catechism has talked about, what it really comes down to is proving, you have to prove yourself to be a son of God, uh, or you have to prove yourself to be God's people. The least failing, as we said, brings condemnation, and it brings a, a severing of fellowship. If we try to achieve our righteousness through the law of God, through obedience, what you have to do is you have to keep it perfectly all of the time, which none of us, of course, can do anyways. James 2, verse 10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Galatians 3, verse 10 says, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In the covenant of works, Adam's situation in the Garden of Eden, and that in which we find ourselves, if we reject Christ, we will stand before God on the basis of our works if we are not in Christ. There is no remedy. There is no redemption. God didn't come to the Garden of Eden and say, okay, on the basis of all of those things, I'm still going to offer Adam forgiveness. He had to set up something else. Once it was broken, we lived with the consequences. So in the covenant of works, we prove ourselves to be the people of God. We prove ourselves to be righteous. We show ourselves to be all of those things based on our performance. But in a covenant of grace, the fundamental difference is this, that God makes us his people. God makes us his people. And that is what it means to be saved by grace. We are sinners, but God works in us and through us. He does not leave us to perish in our sin and our misery, but he saves us. And he does so by a redeemer, by one whom he would send. As we talked about the Belgian Confession, Article 17, Jesus Christ his son. This promise of the Redeemer, of course, shapes all of human history. The reason that human history continues from the Garden of Eden is because of Jesus Christ. If it were not for the promise of a Redeemer who would come and crush the head of the serpent, there would have been no reason for human history to continue. And now, living here on the other side of Jesus Christ, the only reason that God allows human history to continue going on is to bring in more into that number of the redeemed, the people of God. And so that promise of a redeemer shapes all of human history, but the time that we get full clarity on it, of course, is in the life of Jesus Christ. When he comes, he is born, he lives, and he dies, and he is raised to new life. The Apostle Paul speaks of the, the mystery of Christ. And in the New Testament, a mystery is something that was hidden, but now it's revealed. He, he is able to call it a mystery, not because it's something that he doesn't know, but it was hidden before Jesus, and now it has been revealed. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 25, Paul says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. What is our hope of glory? It's Jesus Christ who was the promised seed of the woman. So uh, this is the covenant of grace. It's also called, as we saw in Isaiah 55, it's called the covenant of peace. Why is it called a covenant of peace? Well, because it sets two parties that are at enmity, it sets them at peace. It creates peace between them. We had enmity with God because of our sin. But in Ezekiel chapter 36, it says this, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Because of sin, that can't ultimately be true. God has to deal with our sin and he does so in this covenant of grace. He sets us at peace. Romans chapter 5 verse 1, the great promise of the gospel Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If our sin is not dealt with, if it is not paid for, we will not be at peace with God. It's also, of course, called a covenant of grace. Why is it called a covenant of grace? Well, it causes us to say, what is grace? A lot of times we'll say it's unmerited favor, it's getting what we don't deserve. God gives us what we don't deserve. But I like to highlight for us from time to time that grace is actually, it's God giving us the exact opposite of what we deserve. And that way it's not just unmerited favor, it's demerited favor. We deserved condemnation. We deserved wrath. We deserved eternal suffering because of our sin. And what does God give us by his grace? He gives us eternal life. He gives us blessing. Grace means that God loves us freely. His ways are not our ways. And he does so because of his love. At the end of the book of Hosea, there are some beautiful appeals by the Lord to his people. He's he's had this this story of Hosea the prophet. And and he's brought Hosea through these many travails. And going after this woman who's been unfaithful to him. Chasing after her, bringing her back. The Lord says, I will heal their apostasy. Meaning his people. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. God is saying, I want to give to my people the very opposite of what they deserve. Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. As I said before, there's nothing in our account To buy something in God's marketplace. The blessings that he gives. We are bankrupt. We have zero. Nothing. And God says come. Come. Buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money. And without price. What does God do? He forgives all our iniquity. He heals all our diseases. He redeems our life from the pit. He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. He does not keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Elsewhere in the the Psalms it says, O Lord, if you should mark sins, who could stand? If God dealt with us according to our sins, we would all be destroyed in a moment. But this is the covenant of grace. Because it's God showing us his grace and giving us the exact opposite of what we deserve. So the conclusion is, this is better. This is a better way to go. You want to try to achieve salvation by your works? It'll never happen. You will never accomplish that. But yet God offers to us another way. This covenant of grace. Why is the covenant of grace so much better? 
Well, it is surer. It is more certain. It is founded upon a couple of things that will never change and will never fail. It's founded upon God's oath. We said in question and answer 20, this is from all eternity. God decided to enter into a covenant of grace with his elect people, those whom he has from all eternity elected and predestined to salvation. So God's oath is shaping this covenant. So it is absolutely certain and it cannot fail. God's oath and also God's Blood In the book of Acts, we read of the blood of God, that perfect blood that was shed by Jesus Christ upon the cross for our sins. So it is more certain. It does not fail. Not only that, it is much more gracious towards our work. We spoke a little bit earlier about uh, every failing is, uh, or every error is an instant failing in the realm of works. But in the covenant of grace, it's not as if God is still scrutinizing our work in the same way and everything we do is completely worthless. One of the wonders of the covenant of grace is that when we come to know Jesus Christ and we are set free from sin and death, when God does all of those things in us, all of a sudden we can live and act in ways that are pleasing to him because he sees us through his son or he views us that is in his son in Jesus Christ. Malachi chapter 3 speaks of God coming in judgment. It says, Who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of, of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi. But then it says this, They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Colossians 1 picks up on this in a New Testament way when the Apostle Paul says to the believers there, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He doesn't say, look, you're a sinner, you're sinful, But Christ has redeemed you. Don't worry, you're forgiven. But don't forget that everything you do is still worthless. Now Paul says, walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, because in Christ, represented by this Redeemer, God looks upon you, and he is a loving father to you. And you can render service to him that is pleasing to him, not because because your work is perfect, which it's not, but because Jesus Christ, in a sense, makes up for all of our imperfections. And because of the perfect sacrifice of Christ, God can look upon us and we can be pleasing to him as we serve him in genuineness, in the sincerity of faith, honestly seeking to glorify him. So it's more certain, it's more gracious towards our work, and then finally the covenant of grace is so much better because it raises us, even in our fallen state, it raises us higher than Adam was in the Garden of Eden when he was upright and he was righteous. Because of all that we have been given in Christ, we are said in Ephesians chapter 2, to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We have a place in heaven because of the glory of of Jesus Christ. And we have a guarantee of eternity that Adam did not have. Jesus said he goes to prepare a place 
for us. So you recognize the difference of these two things. You see how much better the road of grace is to walk and why it's so much better to approach life in this way before the face of God. And then secondly, our second main point is the sharing in this covenant. Sharing in this covenant. Who is it? Who is it that has made a part of this covenant? Well, all throughout scripture, the condition of being set right with God is faith. We are saved by grace and through faith. So the condition of the covenant of grace is faith. We should mention, of course, that in the church, uh, we, we think of the visible church and the invisible church. God makes his covenant, his external covenant, with believers and our children. And our desire is to raise our children in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. Our desire for our own lives is to remain faithful to Christ, believing in him, seeking his glory, seeking the glory of God. And all church traditions that may practice different things about the covenant community and may say, well, uh, we don't think of our kids as in the church yet. They come into the church later. But all traditions have to struggle with this visible, invisible distinction. Right? Even, even Baptist churches that don't put the sign of baptism upon their children, they still have to struggle with this visible, invisible, because it's not as if everyone who joins the church perseveres until the end. And so we talk about the covenant of grace and how it's certain and sure and founded in the oath of God, but we deal with things uh, through our own human experience. And so there's a, a distinction between the visible church and the invisible church, but we certainly rejoice in the connection between those two things. And so we can say that those who truly share in the blessings of God are those who are given the gift of faith. Faith is the condition of this covenant. Faith is such a wonderful condition because the first thing it does is it excludes all boasting. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It excludes boasting first because it's God's gift. Why do you believe? Why, Why do I have faith in Jesus Christ? It's not because my intellect was able to recognize something that someone else couldn't recognize. It was the gift of God. He gave it to me by his grace. And so I thank him for it. It excludes boasting for that reason. It's God's gift. And also because of the nature of faith. What is faith? Faith is something that looks inside of yourself and says there's nothing there that's going to be to to, to measure up to God's standard of righteousness. I need to look somewhere else. It's a complete abandonment of what we have in and of ourselves. Faith, as we learn in our own standards, it embraces Jesus Christ and all of his merits, appropriates him, and seeks nothing more besides him. Faith finds its object, Jesus Christ, and it rests upon him and says, here is my salvation. Here is everything that I need. I will trust in him, and I trust that he is giving me all that I need to be saved. So faith is the condition of this covenant. And then secondly, Uh, requiring faith, not only does it exclude boasting, but it excludes universalism. We talk about the grace of God and and God's grace is so wide and it can be offered to all of the world and how wonderful is the grace of God. But we still have to understand that just because God is gracious, that does not mean everyone who ever lives will be saved. 
Requiring faith excludes universalism. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 1 Peter 2, for it stands in scripture, behold I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus said, this is the will of my Father, that you believe in the one he has sent. Because of all of this, what should we do? We should rejoice. Uh, We have the assurance of faith as you look to Christ and say, there is my Savior, there is my salvation. If If you are not trusting in Christ in that way, you should pray to God. Ask him to give you the gift of faith and to look to Jesus Christ and to say, I am a sinner and I do need to be saved of my sins. And I do need to look to this perfect mediator and this perfect redeemer. Some people say, well, God won't have me. God doesn't, God doesn't want me to be a part of his kingdom uh, for whatever reason. We need to understand that God will never turn away a sinner who hates his sin and seeks to be saved from them. Some people say, well, I'm not worthy. I'm too sinful. If salvation were given only to the worthy, then no one would be saved. If it were only those who are worthy that were saved, then no one would be. And so, uh, that is those who share, those who have faith. And then finally, walking in this covenant. Walking in this covenant of grace. We relate to God In this estate of salvation, we have been welcomed into this grace in which we stand. And so what do those people who know Christ in this way, what do they live like? What do they look like? What do they act like? If you've begun to grasp grace and to know it, to taste it, then first you will be humble. You will be a humble believer in Jesus Christ because you see the magnitude of his grace, and you see the way in which salvation works by grace, and it causes you to have humility. 1 Peter chapter 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. We humble ourselves under the hand of God. Humble ourselves before him because we see how wonderful it is to be saved by grace. It allows us to live in the kinds of ways described for us elsewhere in the New Testament epistles. Philippians chapter 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And where is the standard of humility? It's found in Christ, who himself is God, but did not exploit that position that he had, but rather used it so that he might seek and save lost. So if you've begun to grasp grace and to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, you will have this humility that says, I am to count others even more significant than myself. I'm to look not only to my own interests, but also to the interests of others. You will have this humility if you've known and tasted grace. 
Not only will you be humble, but you will be willing. It will be your joy to serve this God and to glorify him. Psalm 110 is a beautiful messianic psalm. It says this, your people, that is the people of the Messiah, will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The people who stand in the train of this Redeemer would gladly give all that they have for him. They would lay down all that they have on earth to be counted among his in heaven. I've mentioned this before, but Napoleon uh, has this great quote. He was fascinated by Christ and the power of Christ. He says this, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest uh, the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Such an amazing picture you could have in your head. You see uh, armies of millions of people on the earth sort of coming against each other in the various ways that we do. At any moment during any of those battles, Jesus Christ could show himself. And there would be so many from all sides who would gladly drop all of their arms to go and to serve their Savior and their King. If you've known, if you've tasted grace, you are a willing servant whose great desire it is to serve your God day after day. Not only are you humble, not only are you willing, but also you have a desire for holiness a desire for holiness. First Peter 1. Therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written you shall be holy for I am holy. We see our great God who has saved us by grace. He is holy. It becomes our desire to be holy as well. Not only do we have a desire for holiness, but also we are loving. We love the God who has saved us by his grace. Thomas Watson says this, God's delight is in you. He gives you the key of all his treasure. He heaps pearls upon you. He settles heaven and earth upon you. He gives you a bunch of grapes by the way and says, son, all I have is thine and does not all this call for love who can tread upon these hot coals and his heart not burn in love to God who can taste of his goodness who can experience something of his grace who can know something of their sinfulness and their wickedness and their rebellion and understand that they have been set right with God through Jesus Christ who can tread upon those hot coals And not burn in love to God. And so that brings us then uh, to the final point. Not only humble, not only willing, not only a desire for holiness, not only loving towards God, but also thankful. Watson goes on to say this, God is your God in covenant. He's bound himself to you by this covenant of grace. He has done more for you than if he had made you ride upon the high places of the earth and given you crowns and scepters. Oh, take the cup of salvation and bless the Lord. Eternity will be little enough to praise him. Musicians love to play on their music where there is the loudest sound. And God loves to bestow his mercies where he may have the loudest praises. You that have an angel's reward, do angels work. 
Begin that work of praise here, which you hope to be always doing in heaven. Because of our thankfulness, we can serve God in that gratitude, doing things that we'll be doing for all eternity, glorifying God. We're going to be doing that forever anyways. And so the opportunity stands to us to say, if you have known grace, if you have tasted grace, you've seen how much better it is, how hopeless we are to try to accomplish our own salvation. Here is what God does freely in Christ by a Redeemer. The wonder of it all. Serve Him in thankfulness and gratitude because of what He has done in and through this wonderful Redeemer. Let's pray. And so, great God, we thank you for that chance to recognize the good work that you do in grace and by the power of the gospel. Grant us faith. We pray that all of us here, that we would joyfully have taken the cup of salvation. You know that so many of us have lived in, in faith for many years. We pray that you would refresh us in that. Make it seem new to us, the love that we have for our Savior and our Redeemer. We pray for others who may uh, be struggling with some of these things. We pray that you would, you would bring them, call them to yourself, and grant them all of these things that we need so desperately. Faith is your gift. And it is by faith that we participate ultimately in these blessings of salvation. So we thank you and we praise you for Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.